Hey friends, it's TJ, the weirdo with a beardo from Wings 93, with another installment of True Crime Tuesday. This week, we dig into the FBI archives for a story about the largest espionage ring in the United States, with episode number 62, The Duquesne Spy Ring. Our story begins with a man by the name of William Siebold. Siebold served in the German army during World War I, left his home country in 1921, only a few years after the end of the war. He would eventually become a naturalized citizen of the United States in 1936 and worked a series of industrial and aircraft manufacturing jobs between the U.S. and South America. In 1939, William Siebold returned to Germany to visit his mother, where he was approached and interrogated by high-ranking members of the German Secret Service who attempted to blackmail William into spying on the United States. They even went so far as to steal his passport, so he couldn't return to America without agreeing to their demands. The Germans sent Siebold to Hamburg, Germany for espionage training, but not before Siebold visited the U.S. consulate in Cologne to pledge his allegiance to the Allied forces and offered to cooperate with the FBI, thereby launching his career as the first secret double agent for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Now, in February of 1940, William Siebold returned to the United States, landing in New York City, assuming his new identity as a diesel engineer consultant named Harry Sawyer, a persona given to him by his Nazi handlers. Siebold certainly wasn't the only person the Germans planted on U.S. soil to gather intelligence. Dozens of other agents were sent to the United States to perform specific jobs and relay valuable information that could prove useful during wartime. It was Siebold's job to meet with some of these other informants and act as a communication pipeline, passing messages to and from the German military and his fellow spies. While secretly working with the FBI and the U.S. government, Siebold was an incredible actor, playing right into the hands of the Germans, who seemed to believe every word. Now, FBI engineers built a secret radio transmission site on Long Island, where for 16 months, agents pretending to be William Siebold sent over 300 messages to the Nazi army and received nearly 200 in return. The FBI also set up an office in Manhattan so Harry Sawyer, a.k.a. William Siebold, could receive visits from other spies. His office had been bugged with hidden microphones and two-way mirrors so authorities could see and hear everything that was going on and record every last bit of it. Now, these secret recordings caught Nazi visitors trading secrets about sensitive government, military, and wartime information with the German Gestapo. One of these frequent office visitors was Frederick Fritz Duquesne, a veteran spy for the German military and the leader of the group of conspirators in the U.S. Duquesne earned a reputation during World War I for sabotaging British warships with hidden bombs and sunk several of them. Duquesne became increasingly trusting of Siebold, passing along sensitive information for Siebold to then transmit to the Nazis regarding future meetings with other spies, national defense details, and maritime documents tracking British ships, ports, and technology. An investigation would later show Duquesne was receiving payments from Germany for his work. Now, During one of Duquesne's visits, he explained to Siebold how to set fires at industrial complexes, showing photographs and plans he allegedly stole from the DuPont plant in Wilmington, Delaware while describing a bomb that was being made somewhere in the United States. But Duquesne, as the saying goes, was only the tip of the iceberg. There were 32 more people connected to the ring of Nazi spies. Former Gestapo member Paul Banty, whose job it was to create turmoil among the union workers to sandbag production. 
because of course you can't produce product when your workers are on strike. Alfred E. Brokoff was a boat mechanic in New York Harbor for 17 years after fleeing Germany in 1923. Alfred had ties to nearly every undercover German agent working as a seaman on various ships in the port and would assist in transporting information to the homeland about cargo destined for England and other European destinations. Several others, including Heinrich Klossing and Conradine Otto Dold, working on commercial transport ships, would act as couriers, delivering goods and intel from the United States to other Nazi spies in South America and beyond. Richard Eichenlaub was a German immigrant who ran the little casino restaurant in New York City, a meeting place for Nazi spies. He reported directly to the German Gestapo, delivering information from his customers, who were often involved in the production of defense products including dynamite, which he would later procure for a bomb project. Edmund Karl Heine was a native of Germany who held various sales and service positions in the Ford and Chrysler Motor Companies, which allowed him to travel between the United States, South America, and Eastern Europe. Heine's responsibility was to gather technical data, including aircraft design and manufacturing details. Another person, Felix Henke, was trained at a German military school and was an experienced radio operator, which he used to transmit intel to the Nazis. However, his messages were intercepted by the FBI and he was subsequently arrested. Another person, Hartwig Kleiss, was recruited to study shipbuilding, including where guns were placed and how guns were prepared for firing on these various ships. He also obtained information about U.S. Navy speedboats, which he then gave to Siebold to transmit to the Nazis. He would later serve eight years after pleading guilty to espionage. Hermann Lang worked for a company that manufactured highly confidential defense materials, which he shared with Nazi authorities. Karl Rupert gathered photographs and other intel on the construction of national defense materials while acting as an inspector for the Westinghouse Company in New York City. Yet another, Everett Minster Roeder, was a native New Yorker and a designer and draftsman for the U.S. Army and Navy. Roeder originally cooperated with the Nazis in exchange for money, but eventually would become a spy. Lily Stein was an instructor who trained William Siebold in Germany and was one of his close contacts on U.S. soil. She often gave him information to transmit to the Nazis, and her return address was used when mailing information on the Nazis' behalf. Elsa Wustenfeld was a close friend of Lily Stein and a secretary at a law firm representing the German consulate in New York City, and she would often deliver money to Frederick Duquesne. And those are just a few of the people who were tied up in the spy ring, headed by Frederick Duquesne. In total, 33 people were eventually charged with being part of the spy ring. 19 pleaded guilty. The other 14 were brought to trial in federal court and found guilty December 13, 1941, just several days after the bombing at Pearl Harbor. Members of the organization were sentenced to a combined total of over 300 years in prison. As for William Siebold, the double agent who helped bring down the largest spy network in America's history, once the court proceedings were finished, William was given a brand new identity and a humble new start as a chicken farmer in California. And even though he aided in the capture and conviction of nearly three dozen international criminals, William Siebold was, as many would argue, improperly compensated for his contributions, found himself poor and delusional, and in 1965 was committed to the Napa State Hospital diagnosed with manic depression. Siebold stayed at the Napa State Hospital for the next five years until he passed away of a heart attack at the age of 70. And that is this week's True Crime Tuesday story, episode number 62, The Duquesne Spy Ring. Join me next week for more stories of true crimes and unsolved mysteries. We'll see you next time.